And remember, it's not his question or her question or somebody else's question. All of these questions are usually our own questions. Many people have these questions. And sometimes I've seen the answers. They may not work for the one who is asking the question. But they may work for somebody else who is sitting quietly and listening to the answers. <coughs> so let's attentively listen to the questions and the answers. We have, uh, to begin with, several <coughs> questions on practical Vedanta. Yes. Um, from Uttaran. How can we train the mind to get rid of karma vrittis? Can someone be aware of his or her progress towards enlightenment? Can they actually know whether they are progressing towards the final awakening? From Subramanya, how does a person who has experienced a strong love of God fall back into lust and worldliness? How can it be avoided and how does one regain love of God? How to avoid the mind being affected by the hundreds of different hateful and misleading things that happen in life? From Vikas, how do we reconcile our need for inner peace on the one hand with our passion to be successful in the world on the other? And from Anurban, why does our nature drag us against the laws of nature even if it is nature itself which has set the laws. For example, jealousy is not the rule of nature, but we as human beings have a tendency to feel jealous. Is it that the tendency of a human being is to sail the boat against the flow? Yes, all those questions have a common theme. Spiritual progress, spiritual struggle, spiritual practice. The nature of desire and how it's an obstruction to spiritual growth. How do we know that we are growing spiritually? And the desire and the nature of activity in the world and how it can be reconciled to practical spirituality. So these are the questions. The first question was how does one overcome karma, desire, lust? The number of questions are related to this. I will speak about it in this way, um, levels of practice at um, four levels. First of all, the more we are concerned with ourselves, the more we are subjected to our personal whims and desires and ups and downs of the mind. The more we think about the welfare of others, the less the vagaries, the problems of our minds trouble us. Have you noticed, I've often seen, a mother in a busy household has very little of these personal problems because she's got too many of household problems. Because it all depends on her and she is busy from the morning till night and uh, um, running around trying to keep the family together, maybe hold a job at the same time, do everything at once. When you're concerned with many other things, especially others, and your personal equation is not there so much, then you will see these desires, which tend to pull us down towards the world, they don't function so much. So the first thing is unselfishness. Become immediately concerned with a cause larger than yourself. Volunteer. 
do something for others if you have the time and energy or make sure that you're working for your organization for your um, local religious organization for the charity for your family more and more others not me that's one powerful way the second way is what we are doing outside of course um, one more thing here what we are doing in the world as far as possible it, it must be within the limits of of ethics and morality if I continuously do something which my own conscience tells me that it is wrong you will find that the mind is continuously disturbed as far as possible within the limits of dharma within the limits of morals and ethics don't agonize over it but don't keep on doing something that which, which we would be ashamed to tell others in public and that basically clean up our own lives then spirituality begins first moral life then unselfish life so unselfish action must be preceded by a basis of morals and ethics the second thing is where do our emotions go our activities externally are of course let us assume we will be as far as possible unselfish and concerned with others with the welfare of others even if there are not many opportunities in our lives to do anything for others we can at least think well of others every time we have a problem or even if we do not have a problem when we deal with others let us be well wishers for everybody now the second thing is internally our emotions love desire it's the same force it has to be turned towards God a young devotee once I said to Sri Ramakrishna he was training to be a monk I don't like the company of women I dislike women and he thought Sri Ramakrishna would be pleased he said Ramakrishna said you are a fool Turn desire towards God. That is not the way to deal with, uh, with lust, with desire. The way to deal with lust and desire is to turn it towards God. It's a very important point to learn. It is the same force which says, I want the world. The same I want. Let the I want remain and remove the world and put God in its place. It's the same I want God, the same I want, the same force, the same desire. Positively, it must be channelized somewhere. And of course, there are many, many ways of doing this. Worship is one way. Have a little ritual in your life. And it must be a um, ritual with life, not a lifeless ritual. That's the problem over rituals. It comes as maybe a small ritual, maybe a little incense, maybe a little prayer that you start with the day with and end the day with. Up to you. Use music, ritual, music, prayer, whatever appeals to you in your format, in, in the, the form in which you love and adore God. So, um, learn some of the prayers. A prayer coming from the heart in your own language is best. But also some of the prayers in different religions. Uh, Sri Ramakrishna would teach the young people who would come to him, to how do you pray to the Divine Mother? Oh mother, I do not want anything in this world, neither wealth, nor fame, nor success. Oh mother, keep my mind pure. Uh, let me want only thee. 
Let me have love only for thee. Let me not be trapped in your maya. Let me have pure devotion at the feet of the Lord. And he would, he would while praying, teaching others to pray, he would actually cry himself. His face would be wet with tears. It was a powerful experience for those who saw him. So love of God, love of God, channelize love towards God, channelize desire towards God in whichever form you have. If you have a faith in God in some way, and most of us here do, then you are lucky. If you are a dry gyani, then this is one thing, don't be too proud of yourself. You know, I don't believe in those guys that, well, it's your loss. <laughs> uh, it's a great power. Often, you see, in the path of knowledge in Vedanta, a weakness is that a why, why devotion is prescribed. A great, I remember hearing a great Vedanta teacher saying that for, a, for those who are on the path of knowledge, the path of bhakti, of devotion, is very useful for them. It's very necessary. Why? The reason is, I may understand what we just did at the meditation before this, I am the bare awareness and mind plays its thoughts, the waking, dreaming and deep sleep come and go. So that means all my desires, my troubles, my guilt, my jealousy, all is in the mind, I am the witness of it. Now it's uh, logical to say this, rational to say this, you may even accept it, but you will see it's not very effective in day-to-day -day life. The reason is this, when the mind is impure, when it is full of these this kind of turbulence. The intellect may understand something, but the lower mind does not accept it. So the lower mind goes in its own way and the intellect goes in another way. And you have this conflict. Vedanta tells you what it is, what this world is, what we are. But there it stops. But what about the mind which has been conditioned deeply for years and years, maybe lifetimes? So de devotion works at that level. Emotion. Devotion works at the level of the heart of emotion. It replaces negative worldly tendencies with divine tendencies. That's why the path of devotion is very useful for somebody on the path of knowledge. The contrary may not be true. For those who are on a devotional path, it may not be particularly necessary to practice separately the path of knowledge. So anyway, this is the second thing. That learn to channelize your devotion, love towards the divine, more and more. Does that mean you will not love human beings? Does that mean you, you will not love the dog? Yesterday I was walking in Central Park and I saw this lady. It was admittedly a very cute dog. But this <laughs> lady was fussing so much over it. And she had a professional photographer po photographing her in different poses in front of the lake and the, uh, the, the uh, fountain and the different places. So, um, so, does it mean I cannot love the dog or love uh, people in the world? You can, but it's by seeing divinity in all of them. My love goes to God in all of these forms. I'm not attached to the particular form. So that is the second, second one, bhakti. The first was unselfishness. Second is devotion, love of God. Third, thoughts of God, emotion directed to God. See, the person, your thoughts will go what, where you love. 
what we love, we tend to think about that. So, you know, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. What you value, that you will love. What you love, that you will think of. Where your heart is, there your mind will be. We should add, add that too. So, so fill the, the mind with thoughts of God. The stories and the prayers and the, you know, the photographs and the images, whatever. This is the second one. The third one is even thoughts of God, even devotion to God, even love of God, that also has to be stopped and abandoned for at least once or twice in a day where you make the mind absolutely calm. Not even good thoughts, let alone worldly thoughts, disturbing thoughts, turbulent thoughts, let alone those are gone, replaced by good ones. Now, twice a day at least, in meditation, in calmness, in quietness, in serenity. Just because we have a mind, does it mean we have to keep thinking? Just because you have legs, you don't have to keep running. Just because you have hands, you don't have to keep grasping things. I, I remember seeing that um, Modern Life, Charlie Chaplin movie, in which modern times, he works in a factory an assembly line, and Charlie Chaplin, his whole job throughout the day is to tighten a couple of screws. He has these wrenches and he does this. And for hour after hour after hour he does this. <laughs> Things keep coming in front of him, those assemblies, and he just tightens a couple of screws. And when the break comes, lunch break, he can't stop doing this. He's walking around. <laughs> and the foreman comes and scolds him. I think it was a silent movie with background music. Uh, a foreman comes and yells at him. This big guy, you know, comes in, yells at him, stop, to stop doing that. You can feel that he's saying that, you stop doing that. And what Charlie Chaplin does is he wrenches the nose of the foreman. He does like, like that. <laughs> <laughs> but we have become like that because we have the mind which is thinking all the time. The moment you wake up, worries. I have to do this, I have to catch the bus and all the subway, go to my job. Oh, this is not done, that is not done. The groceries, the dishes have to be clean and this and that. It's the mind chattering away, this. This. <laughs> Why do you have to do that? Mind, they say, is a good servant, a very bad master. And when it becomes pathological, we are mostly on the verge of, <laughs> on the borderlines of pathology. But then it becomes pathological, when there's, you see, somebody pointed out, when people commit suicide and shoot themselves, they shoot themselves here. Make it stop. Yes, just like an instrument, just because I have a pen doesn't mean I'll keep writing. You put it down sometimes, put the mind down sometimes. So twice a day, I am, I can exist without the mind. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Meditation techniques, there are a wealth of meditation techniques. But don't keep changing your technique. That's also the mind. Try this, try this, try this. You want to make me quiet? Okay, try this method. Doesn't, not working, try this other method. It's still the mind. So pick a method. And m many of uh, us, we have been initiated with the mantra, nothing like it. Because the mantra replaces every other thought. Every other thought of the mind is replaced with the mantra. Every thought is replaced? No. The mantra. Mantra is basically a name of God with some mystical syllables. Tell me one thing, those who have been initiated by the mantra. 
of all the thousands of thoughts we have in a day, somebody said we have 16,000 thoughts in a day, in your waking life. Of all the thousands of thoughts we have in a day, how many of them are more important than the mantra? How many are more important? If you just sit, this thought and mantra. Almost none. Almost none. Such a waste of mental energy. Chattering away. Hour after hour, day after day, month after month, year after year. Mm. Replace it with something that will give permanent peace and joy and elevation and nobility to the mind. There are very few times when you actually need to think. Other things in the world, they demand your attention. Think, do it, finished, replace it with the mantra. Stay with the mantra. Keep, become, it's, a, it's your best friend in the world. So meditation. It could be mantra meditation, it could be anything else. It could be, a, if you don't like all of that, it could be a neutral follow the breath meditation and awareness. That is the third one. If you are worried, what was, what was the first two? I'll, don't worry, I'll summarize at the end. And the last one is, even in, in meditation, in the quietness of meditation, if that is spiritual, then the other, other times when the mind is thinking and chattering and you're engaged in the world, then that will be not spiritual. You have divided your life into quiet time, spiritual time, meditation time, that's one. And the non-meditation time, the non-quiet time, that is also not the ultimate uh, reality. The ultimate reality is that we are this ever-silent, ever-peaceful, ever-desire-free consciousness. Realize that as your own identity. And after that, the body and mind can go and do their thing. You are not touched by it. You are ever at peace. So these are the four things I suggest. Unselfishness, more concerned with others than yourself. It helps you to overcome the base tendencies of the mind. Second, directing desires towards God. Remember, where your treasure is, what you, uh, your heart will be. What you value, that you will love. What you love, that you will think of. So love God. Value God, love God. And the wide range of techniques are there for, in, in, the, in the path of, of love. I don't like the word technique. Technique uh, and uh, spirituality sometimes is a, is a sense of doing some, something clever. Sri Ramakrishna would never speak in that way. He would just say, if you have an intense yearning, that's all you need. Vyakulata, he said, in, intense yearning. That sincerity, that, that itself is the most important thing. Then the, the, so the second thing is love of God. Replace love of the world with love of God. The third thing is quiet time, morning and evening. Stop the chatter of the mind. Meditation, daily meditation, whatever form you have got. If you've got mantra meditation, nothing like it. And the last one is reality orientation. What am I? When I truly discover what I am, then I will automatically, forever, be free from the troubles of the mind, the desires which pulled me worldwide, towards the world. Those who, are, who have been listening closely, you'll, you'll see that, oh Swami, all that you said was karma yoga, bhakti yoga, raja yoga, and jnana yoga. <laughs> of course. <laughs> How do we know that we are progressing? Sri Ramakrishna said, yearning for God increases and dispassion, disregard for the world increases. Vishaya Birag Ishwarya Anurag in Bengali. Dispassion for the world and 
a pull god word pull god becomes more real if it's if you don't like the god talk then this idea that i am the witness consciousness i am the ever pure awareness unchanging that becomes not just like a slogan like a few words or a few memorized verses it's a fact and you take more and more delight in it and you we are all about how to stabilize myself in that how to know more about that so that's a sign of progress and the last question was how do i reconcile activity ambition in the world with god realization with spirituality you cannot reconcile worldliness with spirituality god and mammon the two do not go together but what you can do is spiritualize your worldly activity remember the prince arjuna he wanted to give up worldliness and become spiritual and sri ram sri krishna told him yes you can but what is in front of you the duty that you have to do spiritualize that you don't have to abandon everything and go away and sit in a in a cave in a mountain cave it's not possible not desirable whatever we are doing do unto god so instead of saying i am doing i'm climbing the corporate ladder out of my personal ambition won't work if you can give up that ambition and spiritualize that work good if the ambition is strong within you and yet spirituality is also the desire for spiritual growth and development is strong that also can happen then offer that ambition unto the lord it is all mental forces are the forces of god it's a divine mother shakti connect it with god is one thing if it is not absolutely immoral if it is you might say it's worldly all right if it's worldly but if you connect it with god it becomes spiritualized i am doing this work i would like to climb the corporate ladder but i offer the whole thing unto you my lord you have put me in this place let me see you will see slowly the worldliness will go out of it and a divinization of spirituality an expansion will occur there it will occur automatically it might seem funny to you i'll say this and it's not politically correct also today because smoking has gone out of people may uh, all sorts of uh, problems may be there uh, but smoking is very bad so <laughs> you know it's all over the in corporate offices airports everywhere but at one time it was very common i remember i was on a tour of of nasa in houston a tourist so they interested in space race and all of that so somebody took me for a guided tour of nasa in houston and we went to mission control where the moon missions were controlled from and all. it's historical it's a museum now you can go and sit there you can sit there and actually the seats which were used by the um in the viewing gallery and every in every seat has a little box here and slightly <laughs> yeah the older people here know what it is younger people don't know what it is and the, and the tour guide said if you are wondering about that curious contraption on the side of your ch- chair every chair has it that's an ashtray a remnant of a, of an older age and he says i remember when this was really mission control and space uh, missions were being controlled from here and the whole room would be full of cigarette smoke for hours and hours and hours and days and days and days <laughs> okay why am i saying this um there was a, this wonderful old swami who used to smoke cigarettes and uh um the story is very cute here he another swami noticed that he he was nearly in his he was in his 80s this old swami he was a disciple of swami shivananda mahapurush maharaj he was an irishman um he would smoke a cigarette 
and put it out and keep it there and later light it up again and smoke it again. This is a little stub. Then um, this other Swami said, don't do that. Uh, we, we, we can just throw it away. We'll get a uh, new packet for you. You can smoke new cigarettes. And the old Swami said, no, 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 I can't throw it away. It is the prasad of Vivekananda. <laughs> what do you mean? He says, I offer it. It's a lifelong practice. I offer it to Vivekananda. And I imagine he smokes it first and gives it to me. So I, now you may find it. It's, it's no longer um, politically correct to say, talk about smoking, I guess. But, but you see the mentality. Even something that you might call, consider a worldly weakness, it's connected to God. There was Girish Ghosh, Kalipada Ghosh. They were addicted. They, they, they were alcoholics, almost. There's a story of Kalipada Ghosh, how um, long before he became a devotee of Sri Ramakrishna, his young wife, harassed and troubled, she came, she heard there's a great sadhu in Dakshineshwar. So she came to Sri Ramakrishna, this young girl, and said, my husband is, he neglects me, wastes money at, at, at home, and um, he's, he drinks, and I don't know what to do about him. She burst into tears. Can you help me? And Sri Ramakrishna said, he, was, he would never get involved in these worldly things, you know, the cure my disease, get me a job, and things like that. He said, no, 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 I don't do these things. And uh, she kept on importuning him. Then he said, well, in that room across there, there's a lady who can help you, not me. He meant the Holy Mother, <laughs> go there. And uh, so he got rid of her. So she, she went there and went to the Holy Mother, who was embarrassed. She said, no, I'm nothing. It's all that, that is, is there. It's, that's him. He is, uh, you have to ask him, I can't do anything, I'm just an ordinary woman. Then uh, this poor girl, what could she do? She went back to Sri Ramakrishna and Sri Ramakrishna said, no, 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 she's just um, putting you off. I don't do these things, go back to her. <laughs> so she went back. And once or twice like that when she went back and forth. But you see, here's the difference. She has a mother's heart, holy mother. And she finally said, all right, my daughter, come. And she offered, she offered some flowers to the picture of Sri Ramakrishna in the in the in the puja. And she gave him some. She gave her the little the young girl something and said, "Take this, and take the name. Repeat a mantra. Your husband will be all right." And the girl went back with faith. And nothing happened. Things continued the way they did. But twelve years later, Kalipada Ghosh who was a friend of Girish Ghosh, another, <laughs> who, he, uh, the great dramatist, but who was also addicted to drink, and they were good friends. So Girish Ghosh brought Kalipada Ghosh to meet Sri Ramakrishna. And so Kalipada Ghosh, he was slightly inebriated that day also. He stumbles into Sri Ramakrishna's room. And many people are there. And Sri Ramakrishna, who had never seen Kalipada Ghosh, he had just seen, her, uh, seen his wife 12 years ago, just for a few minutes. As Kalipada Ghosh stumbles, stumbles into the room, walks into the room, Sri Ramakrishna says, Look, there he has come. He has harassed his wife the last 12 years. Nobody understood what, <laughs> what he is speaking about. It's only made sense much later when the whole story came out. And, um, and there's a very beautiful story which goes on, you know, how Kalipada Ghosh says, uh, what, what do you want? Sri Ramakrishna asked him. And Kalipada Ghosh says, Do you have something to drink? <laughs> 
And Sri Ramakrishna says, yes, I have. But is, um, if you take mine, what I'll give you, then you will lose the taste for all other kind of drink. It's so powerful. And Kalivada Ghosh is puzzled. Is it uh, Indian or British? <laughs> <laughs> and Sri Ramakrishna says, and people around were, were furious because of this. They didn't understand what was going on. But actually, the subtext of this, Sri Ramakrishna understands, and Kalipada, somewhere deep into, inside his heart, because he's also suffering, he understands. And Sri Ramakrishna says, no, it's entirely Indian. <laughs> <laughs> but if you take it, that's it. You will forget everything else. And it's such a powerful drink. And Kalipada Ghosh, in tears, he folds his hands and he says, give me of thine drink. That's what I want, Master. And so he becomes a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. And there's that beautiful incident that a few days later he keeps coming to Sri Ramakrishna. Very touching incident. That he was a rich man. Uh, he, one day Sri Ramakrishna is getting ready to go to um, Calcutta on um, his horse, um, horse buggy. But Kalipada Ghosh comes across the river Ganga and he says, come with his boat. And he says, come with me, I'll take you across the river to, to Calcutta. So, and Sri Ramakrishna, not suspecting anything, like a child, he says, all right. He gets into the boat and Kalipada asks the boat to be launched and they go across. And in the middle of the river, Kalipada Ghosh orders the boat to be stopped. And then he goes and falls at the feet of Sri Ramakrishna and catches hold of his feet. And he says, have grace upon me, master. Bless me. And Sri Ramakrishna is flustered. What's this? Start the boat. What's going on? He says, no, until you bless me, I will not, we will not go any further. We'll stay here in the middle of the river. Says, bless you with what? You have to bless me. And then Sri Ramakrishna initiates him, gives him a mantra there. Imagine Sri Ramakrishna, avatar and incarnation, gives you a mantra there. And, Sri Ram, and Kalipada Ghosh says, no, that's not enough. You have to bless me. And Sri Ramakrishna says, all right. You don't even have to repeat the mantra, it'll do its own work. Uh, it'll, it'll work by itself. So now let's go. And Kalipada Ghosh says, no, you have to bless me. And Sri Ramakrishna is at his wits and he says, what more do you want? What is it that you want? And then finally Kalipada Ghosh says what is in his mind. He says, the day I die, at that time, and he describes it so vividly, and it all came out true later on. He must have seen a dream or something like that. Otherwise, how can I describe this? He says, the day I die, at that moment I die, at that time, I will see darkness. All my relatives will be gone and I will be alone and dying. I shall see darkness. At that moment, I want you to promise that you will come for me. You will have a, he says, you will have a light in one hand and in the other hand, you will take my hand and take, guide me through the darkness. Tell me you will do that. So such a vivid description. I think he must have had some kind of particular dream. So tell me you will do. I want a promise from you. And Sri Ramakrishna says, oh, all right, all right, that will happen. <laughs> oh, he said, that's, that's all right, let's go. And so they start. And then he became, you know, that he became such a well close devotee. He helped the... Sri Ramakrishna passed away in 1886. But Ghosh helped the new monastic order, helped Vivekananda and many others. When they were struggling. And at the end of his life, there's a beautiful description. He was surrounded by relatives uh, in his Calcutta home. 
And he had a picture of Sri Ramakrishna and a big picture and all of that. But at the last, at that time, I think it was Latu Maharaj who was visiting probably. Um, one of the disciples of a monk. And the relatives thinking that the Swami has come, they wanted to take a break from nursing the, this, their dying relative. And so they went. And at that moment, nobody was there except the Swami. And suddenly, Kalipada Ghosh spoke out his last words. Master, you have come. You did not forget. You did not forget me. You have come. And can't you see that he has come? Put, a, put out a seat for the, for, the, for the master. He has come. And he passed away. Anyway, I told you the story at, at length because it's such a beautiful story. But devotion to God, it can replace. Connect whatever you're doing, even a worldly weakness. Try it. Connect it with God. Not in order to indulge. In order to transcend it. And they all transcended. Kalipada Ghosh, Girish Ghosh, they all... There is a very minor thing. Overcoming their drinking problem, transcending it. But um, it, it worked. Anybody from uh, the audience here? Do you have a question? Yes, uh, I'll, I'll come to you. Uh, please come and ask the question. Yes, come here. Hold on to your question afterwards. Yeah. Namaste Swamiji. Uh, my name is Nilanjana. I've yes. come from Delaware. Yes. Um, so I've been listening to your talks on YouTube and you talk about this one consciousness. Yes. And so I've also been reading Swami Vivekananda's complete works. Yes. And he, he mentions uh, a plane of super consciousness. Yes. And he urges our minds to go there. Yes. So... Um, I wanted you to explain to us what this level of or plane of superconsciousness is and how do we get there. Yes. And the other question I had was, uh, uh, he mentions meditation. So is that the only way? That was my question. Right. And the other question I had was, um, you talk about enlightenment through the path of knowledge. Is that yes. the only path to right. enlightenment? Right. So what is this? Superconsciousness, because you're talking about one awareness, one consciousness, and Vivekananda does mention a number of times. He says, from the unconscious to the conscious to the superconscious. Um, the superconsciousness is this pure consciousness which we're talking about. The Turiya of the Mandukya Upanishad, the Sakshi, Atman, Brahman, pure awareness. Today I use the term bare awareness. That awareness in itself, our real nature, that is that superconsciousness. Uh, when it is ap appreciated in its real nature. Otherwise, what happens is, how do you distinguish it from the awareness which we have now? What we have now, what kind of awareness do we have now? If you look, you will say, here, I am aware of your voice, I'm looking, I'm aware of seeing things, hearing things, I'm aware of thinking, desiring, feeling, remembering, forgetting, I'm aware of enjoying, suffering. All this is our awareness, the awareness in which we live our lives. And sometimes I seem to sink into unawareness, like deep sleep or unconsciousness or even coma or whatever, or, or um, um, uh, anesthesia. So we, the, our range of experience is sometimes lack of awareness and sometimes this awareness which we have, the worldly awareness which we have, externally and internally in our minds. Are you with me? This is, our, this, is, this is what is called consciousness and unconsciousness by Vivekananda. What is the relationship of this with the pure consciousness? 
That witness consciousness, the pure consciousness, the Turiya, Atman, whatever you call it, channelized through the inner instrument, mind and sense organs, is what we are experiencing now as this awareness. In Sanskrit, in Vedanta, they have very specific um, terms for it. Swarupa jnana, vritti jnana. Jnana means consciousness or awareness or knowledge. Swarupa jnana, what it is, it's in its real nature. It's pure consciousness in its real nature. Vritti jnana means the mind undergoes modifications. You just think something, you're listening to my words. As the words enter your ears and are transmitted to your mind, your mind undergoes waves. When you listen to my words and recognize them and get the meaning. Or suppose I do not get the meaning, that lack of comprehension. These are all waves in the mind. These are called vrittis. And that consciousness when it shines upon these vrittis, it is called vritti chaitanya or vritti jnana. That is what Swami Vivekananda calls the ordinary consciousness. Consciousness in itself, Swami Vivekananda calls it superconsciousness. And when these vrittis cease, when these vrittis cease, as in deep sleep, as in unconsciousness, then what happens is, this ordinary consciousness ceases. And we feel, we are, it's unconscious, nothing, blank. But that pure consciousness is continuously there. There are no vrittis, no movements of the senses or the minds to illumine. So blankness is there. Our attention is on the blankness. We think nothing. Blank. When the mind moves into vrittis, we say that, oh, now there is something. I see, I hear, I smell, I touch, I desire, I love, I hate, I remember, I forget. I understand or do not understand. These are all vrittis. When these vrittis are silent, blankness, we think nothing. Sleep, unconsciousness. But that unchanging awareness is there. We don't know it. Accessing it, realizing it, noticing it. Else it's as simple as noticing it or recognizing it. When? Here. Now. That is called superconsciousness. How do you realize it? Meditation is certainly one way. Usually Vivekananda, Swami Vivekananda uses these terms. Unconscious, conscious, superconscious. In the context of Raja Yoga, meditation. So what he says is, one way is, when we are using our minds consciously, at that time if you consciously calm the mind down through meditation, it could be that Dirgha Pranavacharana meditation which we did, but in Raja Yoga, Patanjali Yoga, there are many types of meditation which are suggested. Uh, Ashtanga Yoga, the eight-limbed yoga is suggested. The whole purpose is, while remaining awake, not going into unconsciousness or deep sleep or anything like that, while remaining awake, can I shut down the vrittis of the mind? How do you shut it down? Not by making it blank. It won't work. Other vrittis will keep rushing it. Raise one vritti, like a mantra for example. And replace every other vritti with it. Make the mind absolutely focused and one-pointed. And the next step after that is the mind ceases. That is samadhi. From sampragyata samadhi to asampragyata samadhi. What will happen then? At that point, yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodaha, yoga, samadhi is attained, which is cessation of the modification of the mind. Tada drashtu avasthanam. The pure consciousness, witness, which we are, is then appreciated in its real nature. That is, as unlimited awareness. Not awareness involved with mind. 
That's what we are aware of right now. If you do not do that, if you're normally active, like we are walking, talking, thinking, doing, then what happens? Vritti Sarupya Mitaratra, the fourth sutra of Yoga Sutra. The consciousness, that superconsciousness itself, is now involved with the mind and we call it ordinary consciousness. So shutting down the mind through meditation, not by making it blank or falling asleep, through meditation, shutting down the mind of cessation of the movements, modifications of the mind, that is one way. <coughs> the, the other way is the path of knowledge. Yoga is one way. Jnana is another way. What is the path of knowledge? Use the mind itself. Let it go on thinking. Because that pure awareness is there right now. Isn't it? It has to be there. If I am aware of my thought, then awareness is there. All I am interested in is recognizing the awareness in itself. Let me use my thoughts, let me use the intellect, the faculty of the intellect, to discriminate, to analyze. They say the signal from the noise. They say. So, to analyze the background awareness, not as an object, you can never get it as an object, to recognize it in and through all thoughts. It's like, there's a movie playing on a screen. One way of appreciating the unchanging screen the, the, the um, foundation, the, the, the basis of the movie is to switch off the movie. That is the yoga method. Switch off the movie. Then you can see the screen as it is. Again here, don't be misled by the analogy. The screen is an object. So if you switch off the movie, you can see the screen as an object. But that bare consciousness or pure consciousness, Atman is not an object. If you shut down the mind, there it the only way of saying is it shines forth by itself. It's not objectified. So that's one way. Another way is to understand what is a screen and what is a movie. Even while the movie is playing, you understand what the screen is. Is that possible? It's possible. Don't, don't we do that? When the movie is playing, you know what a screen is. So when the movie is playing, if I tell you, um, here in the movie, while things are happening, there's action going on. Do you understand and notice the screen also? You don't see it as such because you see the, the uh, pictures. But in a sense you see the screen also. After all, what else are you seeing except the screen itself? You will say, yes, yes, I know. Even while the pictures are on, the movie is on, I know what is the screen. I know absolutely I'm clear about the screen. Jnana tries to do that, the path of knowledge. Even while ordinary consciousness is functioning, walking, talking, thinking, doing, uh, even desiring, Underneath all of that, you notice the one unchanging consciousness. So that is the path of knowledge. The two are not mutually exclusive. Path of knowledge, how does it work? We have tried it many times here. Drik Drishya Viveka is one way. The seer and the seen. The analysis of the three states. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep is another way. The analysis of the um, five layers of the human Personality, five sheets, panchakosha, that's another way. There are different modalities, different um, methodologies of using the intellect to come to a recognition of who we really are. And the two are not mutually exclusive. The path of meditation is very beneficial to the path of knowledge. Just as the path of devotion is beneficial to the path of knowledge, the path of meditation is also very beneficial for the path of knowledge. Quietening the mind makes it much, much more receptive, receptive to the pointing out instructions. In a quiet mind, if it's pointed out, one day 
you will get it. Yeah. That breakthrough happens. All right, thank you. Uh, we have a couple of specific questions on Guru and the Mantra. Guru and the Mantra, yes. Right. Um, from David, who is a doctor, and he says he has been studying non-dual Vedanta for 30 years. Is it advisable to get a new guru if one feels a need for a more bhakti-oriented path to moksha, or if one's guru dies or is no longer available? And from Thomas, who is here in New York but can't actually get here, do you emphasize having a guru and taking initiation in the study of Vedanta? Which mantra is chanted? Do you use a mala, any particular kind of mala? Yes. I'll take the second one first, and then we'll come back to the first one. Do you emphasize <clears throat> initiation into a mantra and chanting a mantra, repeating a mantra, japa? <clears throat> it's called japa. Japa means repeating a mantra in the path of Vedanta, yes. Remember, the path of Vedanta is not an exclusive path. It, it's a tendency in the modern mind to think this or that. I will do this, so that means it means I will not do anything else. But all the great Acharyas, starting with, say, Shankaracharya himself, all the great masters, they included all the yogas, not only the path of knowledge. That might be your primary path. Many here, they, they consider it their primary path. Good. <clears throat> One way of knowing a primary path is why people are attracted to it. It feels real. It feels alive. It feels that it is mine. I, I, it, it's a, other things in comparison might feel artificial or mechanical. Many people say, I'm doing those things mechanically. But just because you're doing those things mechanically does not mean that they will not have an effect. So all the yogas have their role to play, even in the path of knowledge. So the path of knowledge can only benefit from, become energized, more effective and powerful if you have a devotional practice, if you have a meditative practice, and if you have a karma yoga practice. So karma yoga, bhakti yoga, and dhyana yoga, or raja yoga, they all are very, very helpful. By themselves also, they are paths to uh, God-realization. But if you are primarily on the path of knowledge, all the three are helpful. Um, so yes, we do emphasize in our order, I am initiated in, in, uh, into the chanting of a mantra, and in our order, um, both monks and lay followers, we are all initiated into the chanting of a mantra by a guru. There are a few who are empowered to initiate you into the um, mantra. It's called mantra diksha. It has many, many benefits. Even for a person on the path of knowledge, it's very beneficial. What mantra is chanted? That the Guru will tell you. The, the tradition is called, it's a deity meditation. I'll tell you as much as I'm allowed to. Ishta Devata. Ishta Devata means that formless existence consciousness place which we really are remember one thing about it is it can never be objectified and that's good but if it could be objectified it would be different from you do you follow that whatever i can objectify suppose i say 
I cannot reach it, I cannot access it, how can I see it? All of this, it, 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 you're objectifying. If you could do it, it would be a disaster. What do you mean? If I saw my real nature, would it be a disaster? If you saw it, then it would not be your real nature. You are something which is experiencing that. So, it cannot be objectified, but yes, one problem there is, it's a problem of our minds. Our minds and senses are all designed to catch hold of an object. It could be a physical object out there like a picture or a flower. Or it could be a mental object like a thought or a mantra. So, how to help the mind become stabilized in, it, in, the, divine, in the real self? What is done in Vedanta is, the real self, Brahman or Atman, is now clothed with names and forms. You may say that, that's always there, we are all names and forms of Brahman, that is true. But the names and forms in the world which we find, they trap us in the world. That's what's happening. We, we are ever involved in samsara. Now there are some names and forms, which are divine names and forms, which help us to get out of samsara. Which direct our attention back to the reality. So these are the names and forms of God. In Hinduism we have a whole range. They all mean the same thing. Technically the Sanskrit word is Saguna Brahman. Brahman with attributes, with qualities. Omniscient, omnipresent, all loving, all good. Ananta Kalyana Gunagana in Sanskrit. Endless auspicious qualities. So this is the God of religion. In Hinduism you have a wide range of names and forms, with form, without form, and the form can be a male form like Shiva or Vishnu, or it can be a female form like Durga or Kali. You can worship God as father, mother, as friend, and so many ways. As child, different attitudes to God. So, mantra is the name associated with a particular form. Different mantras, different forms. These forms the Guru will indicate to you a particular form. Remember, it's a form of the same reality. Now that becomes is what is called Ishta Devata, the chosen deity. Krishna may be your Ishta Devata, or Ramakrishna may be your Ishta Devata, and so on. And you'll have a mantra which goes along with it. The mantra will have a name of the deity along with a mystical with mystical syllables. I can't say more than that. Because it is supposed to be secret, not in a sense of that it is. Uh, something highly classified or something like that. In the sense that it's, well, it's a very private kind of practice. It's, it's your deepest. It's your, once you get it, it is your most precious possession in the world. Somebody asked me, like, what, is, what are your landmark days in spiritual life? If you press me, I would say, most important is the day I got my initiation, my mantra from my guru. Long before I became a monk. Only next to that would be the day I became a monk. I mean, actually got the formal initiation into the life of sannyasa. But the mantra, getting the mantra is most important. So yes. Um, deity meditation, you have to visualize. The guru will teach you how to visualize, how to meditate, and how to repeat the uh, mantra. Now, do I change the guru? Not working, mantra not working. <laughs> it's like a... <clears throat> Second opinion, a specialist. <laughs> I do not really think my doctor is uh, doing, the, doing a good job. Can I, can I try out another doctor? Um, 
In our tradition, we normally say no. Even if somebody comes to our the gurus in our tradition and say, we want initiation in your tradition, the first thing they will ask is, have you already been initiated? And if they say yes, in our tradition at least we say, that's perfectly all right. Whichever tradition it is, if you've been initiated, please go on practicing that. I have seen in some ca many cases, those who say, no, we want initiation from your tradition. I somehow, I was not inspired by that, it's not working for me. If they press, <clears throat> then what will happen is, the guru tells you that go and take permission from that guru that I want to take initiation from, initiation from another order. If that is not available or not possible, then the guru will tell you that you write the mantra in a, we would say sometimes, say if you want to give up that earlier mantra and practice a new one, then you write it in, we would say in bale leaf, you know, in the leaf of a plant and then with great respect you put it in the Ganges, you let it float away. You offer it back unto God. So, and then you take initiation. But generally we always say, if you've already taken initiation, you've already got a mantra, please go on practicing with it, if you have. If my guru is dead, then do I need a new guru? No. What happens is, once you have taken a mantra in any of the lineages, say for example, I know in Hinduism, once you have taken a mantra in any of the lineages, any of the orders, so you have become part of that lineage now. So once, you say suppose, my teacher passes away. His successor will be in the place of my teacher. So there's a lineage of teachers. So my, uh, my guru, who was the 12th president of the order, and then came Swami Ranganathananda, so he was Bhuteshanandaji, then Swami Ranganathanandaji, and then um, Swami uh, Gahanandaji, Swami Atmasthanandaji, now Swami Smarananandaji. I would regard them all in the place of my guru. Because they, they occupy the the role of the guru of the order. So that happens in every tradition uh, in Hinduism. Okay, that's a good question. Yes. <clears throat> Paritosh, you had a question? Yes. Come. Swamiji, Swamiji says that every vicious thought that is that you think even in a cave rebounds on you many fold. So how does this vibration in one place, good or bad, affect somebody far away and come back to you? All right, thoughts. Um, we think our bodies and minds are separate and individual. In a sense, of course they are, we can easily see that. But also, here itself, isn't it an ocean of matter? There is matter here, densely packed, and there in your body. In between also there is matter, much thinner, there is air. In um, Vedanta even space is considered a form of matter. Panchabhuta, five forms of matter. Space, and air, and fire, and water, and earth. So. Actually, we exist in an ocean of matter, just as our bodies are like waves in an ocean of matter. Our minds are also waves in an ocean of thought. So at a deep level, our minds are actually connected. Repeated thoughts have an effect on myself and a multiplier effect, because what I think, it's like a tuning antenna, so I have tuned myself to a particular kind of thought. I open myself to such thoughts. It is a multiplied effect. 
So good thoughts, I think, are uh, negative thoughts, I think, and such thoughts are out there in the ocean of thought. I begin to attract that. I contribute, I radiate that out, and that I begin to attract also. It's not, so, it's not as mystical as it sounds. What I tend to think of, I tend to pick up talk like that, I tend to read books like that, I tend to see things on the TV like that. You know, I tend to absorb those things from the environment. But other than the environment also, there is something which is going on at the level of thought, where I, those thoughts pour into me. So it has a multiplied effect. That's why we must be careful about what thoughts we entertain. We pull in those thoughts, a vicious thought, we pull in negativity into ourselves. We get quickly overwhelmed by it. A good thought, a noble thought, a kind thought, good wishes out to everybody. When you sit for meditation, you send out a thought of welfare to all beings, to the north and to the south and to the west and the east, to above and below. You surround yourself with positive thoughts radiating outwards to all sentient beings of the universe. It's not uh, just a mental exercise. It has a good effect on my mind and it pulls in good thoughts from the, from the um, thoughtosphere. <laughs> There's a word for that, new sphere. But in Vedanta there is a very ancient word for it, Hiranyagarbha, the cosmic mind. But I also radiate such thoughts out to the universe. I'm affecting others too. That's how it works. Yes. Yes, please come. Gentlemen there. Please tell us your name and ask the question. After that, we'll take another question from them. Pranam Zomaji. My name is Abhijit. Abhijit. Yeah. Uh, I'm a little afraid to ask this question, but still I will have to ask to clear my mind's doubt. Hmm. This, all this Advent, uh, Advait philosophy hmm. means my mind's create doubt just because we can dream somebody developed this philosophy or <laughs> so is this just dreamt up it's a philosophy or yeah, it's just, it's just because yeah just in because we can dream and we can see the world like we're seeing right now so just because of that some philosopher developed this philosophy yes that's a good question is it a philosophy that some philosopher has dreamt up has just conceived of it how do we know it's really true? People ask that. Yes. Advaita Vedanta definitely is a philosophy. Many people say it's not a philosophy. Uh, it definitely is a philosophy. It's taught in the departments of philosophies. There you, you'll find it in the philosophy section, in libraries. And so it is a philosophy. But it's much more than that, much deeper than that. Why? What is the guarantee? The guarantee, the beauty of this particular thing. Why I emphasize that and why I love it so much. It is the one certain thing in a world of uncertainties. How do you know it's certain? There is one thing which you can never ever deny. You yourself. Whatever, what you are, it's up to you know, thought, you have to investigate. But that I exist, I am. Even to doubt my own existence, I must be there. After all, who is, there, who is doubting it? Shankaracharya says, he who doubts it, it is the Atman of that very person. Nobody ever, think about it, nobody ever says, do I exist or do, no, do I not exist? Nobody ever says, I am not. It is ridiculous. You can doubt the existence of God. 
Atheists doubt, they, they, they say there's no God. Agnostics are in doubt about the existence of God. And throughout the history of religion, there have been people, you'll notice those who believe in God, they invest a lot in trying to prove the existence of God. <laughs> there are arguments for the existence of God. There are arguments against those arguments. But the very fact that you're arguing to prove the existence of something means that there's doubt. There's only one thing nobody ever argues about. That I exist. Yes, you will say the Buddhist says that there is no Atma, no self. But think about it. The Buddhist does not deny that you exist. What the Buddhist denies that is that there is the I, this permanent objective existence of a separate self, that is denied. Particular views of certain Hindu philosophers, the Nyaya, Vaisheshika, Sankhya, that view is denied by the Buddhist. That I am awareness. I am. And what kind of I am? I am aware. There is no doubt about that. So that is beyond doubt. Wittgenstein said religion is a search for absolute security. And here is a system which guarantees absolute security. It's one of my favorite themes. So let me talk a little bit more about it. In spiritual life, there are two broad approaches. If you look at the religions of the world and people, here in this room also, you will find clearly, neatly, there are two broad approaches. What are the two broad approaches? One is the God-centered approach. God-seeking. Other one is the self-inquiry approach. I'm not saying self-centered, that sounds bad. Self-inquiry approach. One is, I am searching for God. Does God exist? Another one is, who am I? If you look at the religions of the world. Christianity, God-centered. Islam, God-centered. Judaism, God-centered. Zoroastrianism, God-centered. Within Hinduism, there are many, many streams of God-centered um, you know, paramparas or sects. Vaishnavism, the worship of Vishnu and the avatars, God-centered. Shaktaism, worship of Divine Mother, Durga, Kali, Saraswati, God-centered. Shaivism, Shiva, God-centered. All of them, they conceive of God in different ways, but they're all God-centered. The prayers, and you will see, um, on the other hand, there are actually religions which are not God-centered. That's what confuses people in this country. Because being predominantly Christian with some Jewish population, when you come across a religion like Buddhism, you become confused. How is it a religion? Because religion and God are, are, are synonymous in Western cultures. But not so in India. Not so in India. Because we are used to God-oriented religions. But we are also used to Buddhism and Jainism, which are not God-oriented at all. We are used to Sankhya within, and Yoga within, uh, um, uh, within, within Hinduism. I know there might be some well-read philosophers here who will, will be nitpicking. Said, Swami, Yoga believes in God. Yoga means Patanjali's Yoga. Yes, but the Yoga, the God of Patanjali Yoga is what they call Purusha Vishesha, an extraordinary sentient being, not the God of religion. So, Let's say Sankhya. Sankhya is, is uh, openly non-theistic. Buddhism is non-theistic. Jainism is non-theistic. The two, two broad approaches. And the types of religion are also different. You will find the God-centered religions 
are temple-centered, church-centered, mosque-centered, synagogue-centered. They are more about uh, worship and ritual and love and adoration and prayer, festivals. And I'm making, I'm giving broad sweeps here, they're generalizing. You will notice that the other kind of religion, like Buddhism and Jainism, they are more individualistic, more oriented towards meditation, inward, little more monastic maybe, more philosophical, self-inquiry based religion. Now if you ask people, I remember I used to teach young monks, those novices who had come, um, why did you become a monk? And I would get two answers, exactly like this. Some would say, I'm seeking God. Okay, fine. Another group would say that I want to know what am I or who am I? Self-knowledge. God knowledge, self-knowledge. You see clearly two divisions. If you look at within yourselves, if we look within ourselves, we'll see one of the other is more real to us. Both are fine. But one of the other is more real to us. Or we might be a mixture of both or we might be quite clearly in one camp rather than the other. And when they meet the proponents of the two religions, they have very interesting comments about each other. I, I was in an interfaith conference where um, there were Sikhs, they were organized by the Sikhs, which is also God-centered. There were Sikhs and Hindus, I was representing Hinduism. And uh, there were, um, there was a Jewish rabbi from New York. This was a conference in India, <laughs> in Nanded, in Maharashtra. It's a 300th anniversary of Guru Gobind Singh. So, Jewish rabbi from New York, and they were Christians, and they were, they were, and there was a group of smiling lamas sent by the Dalai Lama. <laughs> now, in throughout the conference, we all got up. You know, in, in these conferences, we all get up and say nice things about each other, and they are all saying we are all children of the same God. Yesterday, I met a gentleman in the Central Park. Uh, he looked at me and he said, this big guy. Uh, he looked at me, hey, you, why are you wearing that dress? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm, because I'm a monk. Why are you a monk? Uh, I said, because I'm searching for God. God sent <laughs> it's, it's a. He said, is something to do with God? I said, yes, it's a, I'm a, a searching for God. It's a spiritual uh, a seeker. And then I asked him, where are you from? He said, I'm from Tajikistan. He's a tourist. And then uh, he said, but brother, um, your God and my God, they are the same God, right? I said, yes, absolutely the same God. And then he was very happy and shook hands with me. <laughs> <laughs> and in these interfaith conferences, we all say the same thing. You know, so uh, one after another, the Hindus and Christians and Jews and uh, Sikhs were saying that we are all children of the same God. We should not fight and disagree. We should be in harmony and so on and so forth. And all throughout, the Lamas were sitting at the back and smiling. <laughs> because if you look at it from their point of view, what God? What God? Where is this God of yours? So, it's possible to be spiritual in that way, definitely. They are very spiritual. They are among the most spiritual people you have. And if you ask the God-centered religion, what do they think about Buddhism? They'll say, it's atheistic. How is it a religion? I know a Swami who is a great devotee in our order. He gets very irritated with, with um, um, you know, he, he, has a, he says about Buddhism, it's half a religion. 
Why? Because there's meditation and morality and all of that is there, but God is not there. Anyway, why am I saying this? Because the question was about Advaita. The central teaching, now see, I'll put it, bring it all together. The problem with the God-centered approach is doubt. Does God exist? Listen to Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris. Very soon you will feel God doesn't exist. Doubt. That problem is not there with the self-inquiry based religion. What am I? Who am I? Inquire within. Nobody. See in the God-centered religions, in every God-centered religion, it's there in Hinduism, it's there in Christianity, arguments to prove the existence of God. Which means there is doubt. You will never find arguments to prove my existence. Never. There's no doubt about it at all. You may doubt what kind of existence it is. But I exist in some sense. That nobody doubts. So the doubt is not there in the self-inquiry based religion. In the God-seeking religions the doubt is there. But what is the advantage of the God-centered approach and the disadvantage of the self-inquiry approach? See, there's no doubt that I exist, but that doesn't mean no good, because it's a miserable existence. The whole problem is that I exist. (laughs) I have no doubt that I exist, but I'm miserable, subject to disease and suffering and frustration and unhappiness and unfulfillment and loneliness and finally death. It's 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 a certain existence, but very limited, surrounded by uncertainties, Uh, Surrounded by unhappiness and sorrow and vulnerable. I certainly exist. (laughs) But I wish I didn't. And God is fantastic. Has none of these problems. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Always in bliss. Wonderful. Except, does he exist? (laughs) So now you have two approaches. One is... Certain existence of the self, but unhappy, limited existence. One is the unlimited existence of God, but doubtful existence. Unlimited, infinite. God, if God exists, any religion will say our God is infinite, but doubtful. I exist, but limited, unhappy, unhappy. Now, see, here is the, I'm coming to the point here. This is what Vedanta does. What does Vedanta teach? One sentence. Tat tvam asi. That thou art. We repeat it. What, what does that stand for and what does thou stand for? That stands for God. And thou stands for you. The individual being. You in reality and what you call God in reality are one and the same. That's what Vedanta does. You are that pure awareness. In association with body mind you are called Abhijit now. You're limited into being Abhijit. That pure awareness in association with Maya is what we call God. Saguna Brahman in, in, in Vedanta. But that one pure awareness, there you are both the same. God and, and Abhijit are one and the same. What does it mean to say Tattvamasi? It means, what it means is, you are God and God is you. Tat is Tvam, Tvam is Tat. That is Thou and Thou is that. What does that mean? It means that if you are God, then you are not a body. You are not a mind. There's a body and there's a mind. But you are not the body mind. You are, you are pure awareness. And the opposite is also true. God is none other than you. Which means, 
other than you the pure awareness there is no brahma vishnu maheshwara father in heaven uh, durga kali jehova no other than you the real the uh, pure awareness there is no god i'll be bold enough to say that you the pure awareness ashtavakra says other than you the pure awareness that pure consciousness there is no jiva no ishvara it is that pure consciousness alone with a body and mind which is a jiva it is that pure consciousness alone with the power of maya which we worship as ishvara it is that one pure consciousness you say but the original question of abhijit stands so but how do we know it's true here here is where it's true remember what is the advantage of the self inquiry based uh, approach it exists certain no doubt what is the disadvantage to limited existence what is the advantage of the god god based approach infinity unlimited the problem with the god based approach doubt. doubt bring them together when you say tat tvam asi that thou art what vedanta is saying is your certain existence is also an infinite existence the infinitude of god and the certainty of your own existence are one and the same that is the meaning of that thou art my own in- certainty i am sure about that when i look into it yes i i'm sure i exist my own infinitude that advaita vedanta guides you to see how the certain con- undoubted awareness which you are is also an infinite undying awareness not subject to death disease suffering no this is the beauty are you beginning to see what i have drawn a huge picture for you like a, a entirety of humanity spiritual endeavor and how the best of both approaches broad approaches is combined synthesized in advaita vedanta that thou art means you the certain undoubted awareness are also the infinite awareness there is no death for you and when you realize yourself as that infinite awareness you transcend all suffering also how do you realize yourself as the infinite awareness that's what advaita vedanta teaches you come to class <laughs> no really the more i study advaita the more i look into it it's just telling us a fact your astonishment grows with the passing days how did i ever not notice this earlier there is really no problem at all swami vivekananda called it the open secret it's a secret but it's an open secret just needs a little investigation it reveals itself to you the body you never doubt that we have a body you never doubt that i have a mind it's a fact it's not something philosophy you would not call it philosophical or theoretical to that level of certainty and to a greater level of certainty you will realize yourself as that infinite awareness in advaita vedanta how can you doubt after this yeah. swaprakasha self revealed it's at first it seems to be a set of beautifully constructed logical steps taking you towards a conclusion that's at the intellectual level but they are at one level they are intellectual arguments but at a deeper level they are pointers to something right in front of you we have a phrase you know right in front of your nose 
Advaita is talking about something that's right behind your nose. <laughs> I'm joking in a way, but yes, it's continuously present to us. It becomes obvious. I'll leave it at that. Thank you for the question though. And never be afraid of asking questions in Advaita Vedanta. Because, Bill, hold on to your question. I'll ask you afterwards. Oh, yes. Okay. A few questions on Mandukya and deep sleep. Yes. Let me know when the food is ready. Yes. Okay. The first one is from Sarav. How can I feel the presence of this consciousness in deep sleep? You say this consciousness is eternal, but when I ask this I, in quotes, to share some experiences of a past life, the I does not answer. So why do you say it is eternal? Is there a process to get these answers? Right. Fra Look at the two questions. Oh. The two questions are, one is, if there is consciousness in deep sleep, how can I feel it? I don't feel conscious in deep sleep. One. Second question is that you keep saying consciousness is eternal, which means it has existed for forever and will continue to exist forever. Ready? Yeah. Um, you will immediately notice these are questions from the perspective of the mind. What you are trying to say, see, must distinguish between awareness and the mind. Whom do you ask for past? What happened yesterday? Whom am I asking? Consciousness or the mind? Mind and the mind will kick into operation, dredge out memories and say, yes, this is what happened. I can remember this. These are things which I cannot remember. That's the memory in operation. That's the mind in operation. Something is recorded of certain sense experiences. Something happened yesterday, day before. And in the yogis say you can recall things in past lives. But it is all mind. It's not consciousness in itself. It is mind lit up by consciousness. If you can remember something from, your, uh, from the past, it is that remembrance also happens in the light of awareness. You are aware of it, right? If I cannot remember, what has failed? Follow this carefully. What has failed? Memory has failed. My memory is saying, I can't remember clearly. The, you say that you cannot remember clearly, so the failure of the memory is presented to consciousness or not? Isn't it present? Isn't it lit up by consciousness? Aren't you aware of not remembering? Is it a failure of memory or a failure of consciousness? Failure of memory. Yes. That I cannot remember things. Why past lives? Even this life. What you ate yesterday, if I ask you for lunch, you might be able to tell me. What you ate for lunch on the last uh, Sunday, you might have to think a bit. Maybe you won't remember. On this day last year? Swami, what are you asking? <laughs> Can you tell me what, what all you ate? Some people have uh, eidetic memory, very few people. But otherwise, most of us, we don't remember even a few days ago what happened. And luckily, we don't. We'd be so cluttered <laughs> if we remembered all of that. So, it is the mind. But consciousness is awareness. It's always there. Whether you remember or you do not remember. And deep sleep is also exactly like that. What shuts down, you say, I don't feel aware. In fact, what you, this feeling, I feel this, I see this, I hear that, all of that is mind and sense organs. In deep sleep, it has been, it's shut down and therefore blankness. I do not see anything, I do not hear anything, smell anything, taste anything, touch anything, I do not remember anything, I do not desire anything, 
I do not even think that I am sleeping. And yet consciousness is there. Why? Because a simple reason. When we wake up, we refer to dreaming and deep sleep also. I was interested to find out that in every language, in every culture of the world throughout history of humanity, in every language we have phrases like, I slept like a log, I didn't know anything. In Bengali they say, ghumiye kada. Sleeping like mud. <laughs> All sloppy and completely deep sleep. Every language has that. Which means it's an experience in every culture. It's not something uh, dreamt up by Advaita. It's an experience in every culture. That there is an experience of presence, there's an experience of absence. Experience is common to both. Here, world is present. This disappears in dream, but dream world is present here. That disappears. Absence. But the absence is revealed by consciousness. Deep sleep is not an absence of experience. It's an experience of absence. If experience is there, because mind is not functioning, because there is no ego, I cannot say, I am experiencing deep sleep. You cannot say that. But you can refer back to it when you wake up. Consider the opposite. Suppose there was no consciousness at all functioning in deep sleep. Nothing whatsoever witnessing the absence of deep sleep. In, in deep, the absence in deep sleep, nothing witnessing it. Then what would we say after waking up? I was awake, fell asleep, dreamt, I'm awake now. I would never even ever mention deep sleep. Do you see? No? If there was no awareness in deep sleep, after waking up, I would not mention deep sleep also. I would mention dreams. I would mention waking up. That's it. That there's something happened in between. A couple of people wrote to me that in, I, we were anesthetized. Uh, we, got, we got anesthesia in operations. And Swami, it was quite different from deep sleep. It was such deep anesthesia that uh, it was such a deep absence. It was like I did not exist. I was there, and then uh, anesthesia happened, and then I woke up. And yet, bless you, <laughs> and yet, notice that you are saying that. You felt a complete absence. But what felt the complete absence? Which can report this. Otherwise, you would have felt, I was awake, now I'm awake again. Nothing in between. That sinking in and arising out of a great depth. That also is noticed. Actually, anesthesia, deep sleep, you don't have to go into it. When you, have, when you look back upon those experiences and consider it carefully in the light of Vedanta, that's a very good way of distinguishing between what is mind and what is awareness. Most of the time when we say, oh, I understand it, what is consciousness? We're talking about the mind. That's why we get confused again. If you would understand, literally I'm telling you this, if you would actually even intellectually understand what is meant by chit or chaitanya in, in Vedanta and mind, antakkarana, inner instrument, just understanding it clearly is just one step, a tiny step away from illumination realization. Because it's there. If you understand what a yellow flower is, what I mean by yellow flower, and say, look at the yellow flower, it's as good as seeing it. Understanding is just one step away from seeing it because you'd recognize it. If you understand, if you say this is 
this is the shrine. This is the altar. If I say no, look at it as wood. If you know what wood is, all you need to do is look at it, look at it and say, yeah, I recognize it. But for that you need to understand what is wood. The difference between an altar and a wood. And if you don't know what wood is, you'd keep saying, no, this is an altar. Where is the wood here? This, all, this whole thing is an altar. Similarly, pure awareness is continuously present to us right now. Even an understanding of the difference between mind and consciousness leads to straight away appreciating what it is. All right. Um, Bill. We'll end with Bill's question because the food is ready. Bill, go ahead and ask from there. I can hear you. You don't have to get up. Just please ask from there. Yes. Uh, I would like to ask a practical question. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. As one gets older, I'll repeat Bill's question. One, um, when one tries to meditate, one falls asleep. How do you handle it? Yes. Why does one fall asleep? Uh, one reason is as the body becomes weaker, uh, and uh, it has its effect on the nervous system and brain also. So sustained attention is difficult. One tends to doze off sometimes. Now, if you have that problem, my answer is don't worry about it. From the point of view of knowledge, from the point of view of the path of knowledge, if you notice that you are falling asleep, or you recognize that you fell asleep, you recognize that you are meditating, trying to meditate, failing, falling asleep, all of that is evident to what? What is, what is experiencing that? That one does not get old. I am getting old. Bill is 95 years old. So I am getting old. Body is slowing down. Mind is slowing down. Do I experience it or not? Yes, I experience that. Then what is experiencing the body slowing down? Is that slowing down? What is experiencing the mind not being as keen as it used to be? That awareness, which noticed a keen mind and now seeing the mind slowing down, is different from the mind. It is. We seem to get confused because we still are caught up with the mind. I am forgetting, I have become absent-minded. Even the language which we use, I am getting old. Are you? Are you? Isn't the body getting old? If you dream, and in your dream, you are a young person again. And in the dream, if somebody said, aren't you old? You would say, no, how am I old? I'm, I'm, I'm 20. 21. It can happen in a dream. And you would be right, because you are experiencing, you are talking about that experienced dream body at that time. Now I'm talking about the experienced body in the waking state. But the one which experienced that young body in the dream, the one which experiences the aging body here, there is no doubt about that. That, that one is a witness to the aging process. It itself is not aging. You know, so it's slowing down. Is it slowing down? Or is it that which notices the slowing down? 
if you notice the slowing down, the slowing down is an object to it. Now with this you can face, um, you know, aging process, mind slowing down, uh, even um, to some extent uh, effects of Parkinson or Alzheimer's, you can witness it. And that distance from it, it's supposed to help also. You relax a bit and you can manage it better. Alright, let me do a peace chant and then please join us for some delicious food downstairs. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastuk